Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. For this episode, I'm talking again to Colin Todge, who's an old friend. We last chatted in December 2017, and since then he's written a couple more books that expand on the idea of enlightened agriculture. That's the kind of farming and food system designed to result in what Tudge describes as convivial societies in a flourishing biosphere. That's from his latest book, The Great Rethink, which goes way beyond food and farming. But even so, food and farming are at the centre of the book and of our conversation. Colin's prescription, not surprisingly, wants us to start moving in the exact opposite direction called for by the food industry and most governments, to move towards enlightened agriculture, which is... Well, I define uh, enlightened agriculture, otherwise known as real farming, (laughs) but I think adequately, and I think definitions are best left loose because you you know we're not we're not lawyers here uh, as agriculture that is expressly designed to provide everyone everywhere with food of the highest quality both gastronomically and nutritionally without cruelty without oppression or exploitation and without wrecking the rest of the world that's what it is one little point is that some people hearing or seeing this definition will say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, we can never provide good food for everybody, etc., etc." And my argument, the whole argument of most of my books and certainly those recent ones, The Great Rethink, is that actually if only we, i.e. human beings, did conceptually simple things well, then we really could fulfill that dream. And the fact that we fall so far short, you know, billion undernourished, two billion overnourished, in the, the, the natural world wrecked, is a tremendous indictment of the strategies, the policies that we bring to bear. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. But just one thing gets me at the moment, which is you say, um, I think you said something like, for all people everywhere. But it's quite yeah. clear that the nature of food production, the nature of real farming, depends on where you are. For somewhere like England, what would, a, what would, what would real farming look like? Yeah. Well, if you follow the, the... To go back a step, real farming or enlightened agriculture is a sort of new term, which I coined. Uh-huh. But it's rooted in two very well-established ideas. One of those is agroecology, which is treating all farms as ecosystems, treating agriculture as a whole, as a a positive contributor to the biosphere. That's agroecology. The second great idea, which comes out of the, the, the peasants' movement, Via Campesina, is the idea of food sovereignty, which basically says everyone should have control of their own food supply. Now, both those kinds of ideas, agroecology and food sovereignty, lead you in general, wherever it's possible. Well, first of all, in, 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 according to the principle of agroecology, we should be trying to emulate nature in our farming. And uh, emulation doesn't mean slavish emulation. I mean, nature does a lot of bad things like volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis, but we don't want to emulate that. 
But the real point is that we're looking for a system of farming which on the one hand is sustainable, horribly overused and misused word, but also more to the point resilient, in other words, can bounce back from disaster or change direction if that's necessary. Now, if you ask what systems in the world are there that are on the one hand sustainable, on the other hand resilient, and then just look at wild nature. I mean, nature has been productive enough for, for practical purposes continuously without interruption no no with interruption but continuously for the last nearly four billion years that's that's pretty damned sustainable and it suffered enormous setbacks including six mass extinctions along the way but always it's come bouncing back and usually although these terms are difficult to um, uh, justify in a better form more diverse than it was before you can argue with that, Jeremy, I know, I'm, in your philosophical I'm, hat. No, it's not a question of philosophical hats, Colin. It's that nature doesn't care about people. Only people care about people. Well, this this may be true, but I, I, my point is not whether nature cares about people or not at this stage, but how does nature manage to be so sustainable and so resilient and how do we emulate that? By by not caring about the dinosaurs. Um, by by nature has no anyway. I don't want to get distracted. Leave, but leave aside that because I actually I disagree with that. But we can get on to that much later. My only point is how do we achieve sustainability and resilience? What does nature do that makes it possible? Well, one, nature is. You look at the, any natural ecosystem. It's extremely diverse. So we might say, well, diversity is a good idea, and okay. it is. Um, we might say it's all, all wild ecosystems are, on the whole, low input. I mean, there can be high input hotspots like estuaries where all the nutrients come flooding down. But on the whole, it's low input. So, And uh, let's translate those two great principles of diversity and low input into practical farming terms. What does it imply? Well, a diverse farm is one fundamentally that is mixed, lots of different kinds of livestock, different kinds of crops. Low input in practice translates into organic. So one would say you want your farming in general to be as diverse, mixed as possible, and as far as possible, organic. Now, if you look at a system which is organic and um, very diverse, it's going to be very, very complex. That's, you know, complexity is built in. If you have a, a, any kind of enterprise, farming or anything else, that is very complex, not only is it uh, very complex, but in order to make it work, you need a lot of skilled input. You need skilled, skilled labor. Not, 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 um, not sort of slaves and serfs, but farmers and growers who really know what they're doing. In other words, it's skills intensive. If you have an enterprise, whether it's farming or anything else, which is very complex and also very skills intensive, there's usually very, very or no advantage in scale up. You want to keep them small so that they work. So you can say the ideal farm, the agroecological farm, enlightened farm, should be uh, complex, skills intensive, lots of farmers, and on the whole, small to medium sized. There's the sort of basic three. So in Britain, 
where we're in a nice temperate climate, plenty of rain and all that stuff, usually, um, you can do this. And, and the, the, the small-ish mixed, etc. farm is, well, the, the normal one might say. If you go to somewhere like a, a, a very dry place, you know, savannah type land, then obviously you, the, the farm, the mixed farming becomes difficult because crops, horticultural crops in particular, are quite thirsty. And rather than irrigate the whole thing, which is very expensive and not sustainable usually, you should think in terms of livestock, focused on livestock. On the other hand, in the same continent, if not in the same place, you'll find places that are wet where horticulture can be done. So to some extent, over all the world, in practice, you need some degree of a specialisation. But you're always tending towards the small, mixed, etc. farm. One last starting point, if I may, is that the small, mixed, i.e. complex, skills-intensive farm is the very precise opposite of the kind of big industrial farms that are now recommended by governments like ours in the United States and indeed by FAO. The very sure. opposite. Sure, and and that's why we're talking to, to, together now because we both feel, I think, that the food system that's being um, promoted is not, in fact, doing us all that much good. In fact, as I say, it's a precise opposite. We should be looking for uh, small, skills-intensive polycultures, in other words, mixed. And what we're recommended is uh, very, very simplified monocultures very high input on the largest possible scale and yet because of the way we measure things mm. it's quote i don't know what uh, cheaper uh more efficient efficient's the word they use yeah um, how do you move in the direction you want to move if you've got you know economists and bean counters saying this is the way yeah exactly um what comes down to the fact that agroecology, as here defined, small mixed farm, etc., is, as I say, conceptually straightforward, very complex, but it's something that human beings understand and have been developing for the last 10, I would say the last 40,000 years. So it's there, you know. But it doesn't, nothing works well in isolation, nothing can be put to rights ad hoc. If you want enlightened agriculture, small mixed farms, etc., etc., then you have to have an economy that is sympathetic to that. And you, if you simply say, as the moderns say, modern neoliberals say, that we must be trying to maximise profit, in other words, most money out with least money in, which you achieve in practice so long as oil is affordable, you achieve by maximising productivity, production, so long as you go down that route, you can never have enlightened agriculture. And so you will continue to wreck the world, as indeed we are now doing. In order to have enlightened agriculture, you've got to rethink the economy. That's point one. And the, 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 the principle that I discuss in my book, Great Rethink, is that what we should be looking for is something that I call green economic democracy. However, you're not going to get green economic democracy unless you have a government that's sympathetic towards it. And a government that's sympathetic towards it has got to say, well, actually, this, the idea of simply maximising wealth isn't what we should be about. We should be about looking after human beings and the, and the natural world. 
we're straying into the policy changes and everything that I want to get to. Um, But before we do that, as far as the small, mixed farm, complex, diverse is concerned, there are a couple of things. One is um, food people, and you included, have, have long said that an ideal diet is diverse and contains lots of different components. Is it just a coincidence that the kind of farming you're advocating for produces the kind of diet we might be better off eating? I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I mean, you're an evolutionary biologist, and it seems to me it's been a matter of co-evolution, actually. Let's say farming is unrecognizable for, I would say, is at least 40,000 years old. The stuff that came along 10,000 years ago is the stuff that's big enough, widespread enough to show up in the archaeological record, which is not the same thing as saying what was the origin. And in 40,000 years, you get a lot of co-evolution. That's simply the case. And over time, evolution sort of determined, for want of a better word, that we would finish up with the small mixed farm because they're the ones that actually work. And and what works is what natural selection favours. And we are adapted to what the small, on the whole, small mixed farm provides. It is also the case, of course, that human beings are wonderful omnivores. They're not just omnivores, we're very versatile omnivores. And in fact, we can live virtually on an all-meat diet, as the Inuit more or less do, to an all-plant diet, as quite a few traditional societies have done, anything in between. In my book, I say enlightened agriculture can't really work. No system of agriculture can work unless people at large eat or buy, but never eat, what the farmers actually are producing. And um, if if you ask what is the enlightened farm producing, the answer is it's producing plenty of plants because it focuses on horticulture and arable wherever these are possible, and not much meat, because the meat is only ever, is fitted into, the, as it were, the spaces, the interstices, where you can't do horticulture and arable very well. And it's very varied, because you set out to be varied in the first place. And also, it's legitimate to import things, commodities, you might say, that are very high value, and travel easily and well. So the traveling is very, cost of traveling is very small compared to the value of the thing. So we've always, or for many thousands of years, imported things like cinnamon and cloves and stuff, which we can't grow ourselves. So, but the point is, if you take enlightened farming and you combine it with a little bit of what you might call fair trade of a sensible kind, you finish up with plenty of plants, not much meat, and maximum variety. And those nine words, I suggest, summarize all the best of nutritional theory of the last 60 years, which I've been following quite closely. One last thing. If you look at the great cuisines of the world on an axis from Italy to China, and I submit that all the greatest cuisines are on that axis somewhere, India, Persia, etc., Turkey, wonderful, you find they all use meat sparingly. They only they use meat, but they only use it as a garnish or as a stock or for occasional feasts, like when your daughter gets married or trying to placate some god or something. But it's that's where they use meat very sparingly. 
So they, all the great cuisines, actually conform to the nine-word principle, plenty of plants, not much meat, maximum variety. I'm, I'm intrigued that you talk about trading in things like spices that have high value and that travel well, absolutely. But so much trade is <laughs> really low-value stuff that happens to travel well. The cereals, uh, you know, rice, wheat, crisscrossing the globe at minimal cost to us and maximal cost to the to the world um how do you get away from that well you've got to keep trade in in proportion now now the great advocate of the sort of commodity approach was um david ricardo end of the 18th beginning of the 19th century um david ricardo made it clear that you shouldn't do anything in the way of trade that is actually damaging to the people that are producing it or the people that are buying it. And he didn't say, don't do anything that's bad for the natural world because in those days it wouldn't have occurred to them to say that kind of thing. There wasn't so much pressure then. But nowadays we would say that. So you would say, look, trade is fine in things like wheat and maize and so on, provided it genuinely benefits the producers and the producer country, preferably the small farmers who produce it, that's sort of not just a few corporates who own the whole lot. Secondly, if it's genuinely good for the importers for whatever reason. And thirdly, if the production doesn't actually wreck the natural world. You could fulfill those traditions, uh, those conditions, and still, for example, export and import rice. But the way it's done at the moment is to maximize exports and imports, treat everything as a commodity and simply judge how much you're going to export or import according to how much money you can make out of it. Now, it's not the actual import and export that's bad. It's the mindset behind it. You've talked about um, your, your small mixed farms requiring a lot of skill, um, requiring a lot of, of, of knowledge. Um, mm. They also require a lot of bloody hard work. Oh, um, yeah. It does seem that part of the problem of work on the land is that you're, for, for the vast majority of people, it seems to be that you are effectively a slave working for somebody else for money. Uh, and, that, and that the satisfaction I know you used to get, and I used to get, of growing food, not only for yourself, but for those around you, there is something actually about that which your small farms might be able to do better for people. Undoubtedly. I think there's more than one way of achieving sort of satisfaction uh, or fulfillment. First of all, it is true that not everybody would get a great kick out of agriculture. So we're not asking, I'm not suggesting that everybody should be a farmer, which would be rather silly. I think everybody should be a cook, which is somewhat easier and it's the cooks that drive the farmers, but or should be, but um, not everyone can be a farmer. I know this sounds like a diversion, but I would like to divert slightly. No society that I know of has consciously, seriously, formally asked the question, how many farmers do we need? What proportion of people should work on the land? Now, at the moment, the range is something like 80% plus, maybe even 90% in places like Rwanda, Angola, and so on. Might be coming down from that, but that's the sort of order. If you have 80 or 90% of people working on the land, 
then you've got very few people to do anything else, and you've got very few people for the farmers to sell their stuff to, except by growing commodity crops, etc., etc., which is not what we should be trying to do. So we can all agree 80, 90% is too many. But in Britain and in the United States, we're down to about 1% full-time farmers on the land. Now that, I submit, is far too few. In America, I'm sure you know the statistic, there are many, many times more people in jail than there are working full-time on the land. Anyway, the question really, I right, is, is what is the ideal number? 1% is obviously too few. You can't do enlightened agriculture with so few farmers. And 90% is obviously too many. Now, I would say as a top-of-the-head figure that in general, no, no country should have fewer than 10% of its workforce working on the land. But probably no country should have more than 50%. Now, this means that a country like Britain, which prides itself on its so-called efficiency, has about one-tenth of the number of farmers it really needs. Whereas a country like India, which probably now has about 60% of people on the land, has almost probably the right sort of number. Let's assume that in a country like Britain, we've got, let us say, 10% of the land, 10 pounds more than we've got. There's various ways in which you can get uh, satisfaction from that, depending on your temperament. Some people, I know growers, who really just want to be on their own. They really don't want to do anything else. Except there are other growers and farmers who really like to work as a team. This seems to be quite a common thing among young people. You know, and the farm used to be a very social place. I mean, that, that is an, another way of doing it. Now, I like, um, I, 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 I consider myself to be left-wing, but I like the idea of the small company. This is part of the, uh, what do you call it, green economic democracy idea. Now, if you run your farm as a small company, and it's very convivial, and you look after your workers, it doesn't seem to me to matter very much whether that farm is owned by a single farmer who is an enlightened and nice person, or whether it runs as a cooperative owned by everybody that's there, or whether it's owned by the community at large and employs people as employees. You know, you can achieve conviviality within a small company, provided it's a nicely run company. Okay, um, so we've got, we've got somehow we're, we're giving the workers an adequate recompense, in fact, a good recompense for the work they're doing. They have um, satisfaction, fulfillment. I call it contentment, but there you go. And then we have government policy uh, that divorces the ownership of land from what you do with the land, as a result of which it's very hard to get into the kind of small farming enterprise so how, how how do you give people access to land when land itself is a commodity well this of course is a crucial issue which, which the world again is not facing up to or in pulling us in the opposite direction from where we need to go but well if you we were giving a as it were a proper answer you would say we have to be seriously radical and the seriously radical thinker i think who is uh well, many people have said this, but who encapsulates the whole idea was a chap called Henry George. But he was a late, say, late 19th century American thinker. And he said, 
basically nobody should own the land. Insofar as people lay claim to it, you can say that it belongs to the community as a whole or to humanity as a whole, and somehow or other it has to be held by the community as a whole on behalf of everybody. So nobody would own land, but what you would, as it were, acquire would be the right to do something with a particular piece of land, provided it's in the public interest, provided it's in the interest of the the natural world. And this is doable, it has been done in some places, but of course it goes right against the grain of uh, private ownership and all that stuff. Overall, we've we've got to have massive land uh, uh, reform over the whole world. Now, this is part of a much more broader uh, process of not reform, but of renaissance, of really restarting again, that involves everything. It involves how we farm, how we govern, how we shape the economy, how we apportion land, what our attitudes to science is, what our attitude to the natural world is. Um, I, I like very much well, what our morality is, what do we really think is important, and I very much like to reinstate the whole business of metaphysics, which asks very fundamental questions like what is the world really like and how do we know what's true and what is the basis of goodness and all those things. This renaissance is not going to be brought about by the present powers that be. At the moment, the world is ruled by an oligarchy. But that oligarchy is wedded to the status quo. It created the status quo. It's not willingly going to change the status quo. So if we want this renaissance, then we human beings at large, people at large, have to make this renaissance happen. Basically, it's a question of every human being taking a a proper interest in what's going on and as it were, getting stuck in. In other words, democracy. Colin Touch, talking from his home in England. As I said, there's a whole lot more in his new book, The Great Rethink. I'll put a link to the publisher in the show notes. But if you want to know more, he'll be leading an online discussion scheduled for the next couple of weekends. That's Saturday, the 17th of April, and the week after, the 24th. And joy of joys, they're taking place in European time. I'll link to those online sessions in the show notes. And also to the College of Real Farming and the Oxford Real Farming Conference, two of Colin Tudge's efforts to spread the word about real farming. All those links will be at eatthispodcast.com, where you can also dig into the archives, sign up for the newsletter, even make a donation. And it's the donations that help to make transcripts available too, a few days after each episode goes out. So, what do you think? Is the idea of real farming, supporting convivial societies in a flourishing biosphere, is that idle dreaming? Or could we actually get there in time? Let me know by email to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or by Twitter at eatpodcast and Instagram at eatthispodcast. Till the next time, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.